0: And you need a set of notes that on the cover should say session number five. So if it says that and the first page is page 31, then you're, you've got the right set of notes. All right, let me run through some announcements quickly. This Saturday is our bowling event. And before you leave today, before you leave the building, we have to know who's going. We've got to call in a number. Uh, right away, the bowling alley wants to know that, to know how many lanes we're taking up. So we got to know today if you're going. And in order to tell us that, you can go out that back door, across the hallway, and into the resource center, and let them know that you're coming. If you don't have the money, uh, which is $7 per person, $28 maximum per family, that's okay as long as we have your name and we know where to send Bubba to find you uh, to get the money later then we'll do that, but we can at least know how many people are coming and help us calculate how many l- lanes are needed. Living Last Supper is just a few weeks away. It is uh, Saturday the 1st, uh, April 1st, and Sunday evening the 2nd. Now there is a Saturday afternoon 3pm presentation, and that's for any of any CBCers who don't have a guest to bring. We're trying to keep seats open in the evening sessions for Uh, guests that come, in particular people who don't know the Lord, because this is an opportunity to present the gospel to them. So if you don't have a guest that's coming with you, we still want you to be able to see it, but we'd encourage you to come at 3 o'clock on Saturday the 1st. You don't need tickets for that one, but there are tickets necessary for the two evening sessions. They're free, but we need to know how many people are coming, and so we're requiring registration and tickets. You can register at our website online, or you can register in the resource center. But you do need to do that and give the total number of people that you'll be bringing. Last announcement I have this is all of this is in your program, but uh, in just uh, next month, we're starting a spring soccer league for K through sixth grade kids. Uh, it's a Christian organization called Upward Soccer, so it's an outreach for us to be able to meet families in our community. But your kids are welcome and encouraged to be a part of it. You need to register for that. You can do that at uh, the website. But also let people know about it. it. Starts April 22nd. Saturday the 22nd is the first of the games for uh, Upward Soccer. Alright. Today is the fifth of eight sessions in How to Be Good and Angry. That means we are halfway through. We've got, we start now the second half of our series. If you've missed any of the prior four, the recordings are always on our website under the media tab, and if you need the notes, we have the notes from the past four sessions in the Resource Center, so you can pick those up up as well. And we've seen in these four sessions together that anger affects all of us, and it involves all that we are. When we express anger, it involves our body, our emotions, our thoughts, our desires, and our our motives. And the desires and motives are at bottom and give rise to everything else. So if I'm getting angry at the wrong things and expressing it in the wrong way, at the root of that is my motivations and my, my desires. And we can carry that displeasure at what we perceive to be wrong with us into different settings so that innocent objects and persons become the uh, become the victims of our ire. We express our anger at our families, for example, even though we we're mad at our boss. We express our anger at work or in traffic, even though we're really angry at our lives. We don't like where we are in our lives. And so we have this displeasure that we're carrying around with us and we can express that toward an innocent object or person. And I call that transfer anger. So you have people who are wondering, why is he, why is she like that? Why are they, why does the least thing set them off? Well, it's often because they're carrying something else around with them and you happen to be the convenient target. We each express anger differently due to our nature and our nurture. We're all different personalities, so the way we communicate, including anger, is going to be different. And also, we've grown up in different settings where we've had modeled before us different ways of expressing anger. We tend to associate real anger with the people who are most extroverted about it or most demonstrative about it. But please understand, if you're an introvert and you do the slow burn, then your anger is different, uh, not in kind, but only in degree. But you still have the same kinds of motivations and desires at bottom that are giving rise to that. And often for the slow burn person, it goes on long enough and festers long enough, it either explodes or it morphs into long-term bitterness. But like all things, the capacity for anger was made by God for good. But we distort it for evil. We as amazing creatures made in the image of God have the capacity for all kinds of good things that we twist and distort because of sinfulness. So I've given the example of sex, for example. Sex was made by God as a good gift, but it gets twisted and distorted in the hands of sinful people. Possessions, material, wealth, that is something that God made for his creatures and his highest creatures, humanity, to manage and to rule for him. But we take these good gifts and we distort them. And instead of being means to the end of being used for God and for his purposes, we now appropriate those, misappropriate them. Another word is steal them from God to use for our own ends. So the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the money. It's the heart that we bring to the money, work, work. That God made and intended for good even before the fall for us to be creative and for us to fashion his world for him is distorted. And we become workaholics and work becomes an end rather than the worship of God in work becoming the end. Our emotions likewise can and are distorted this way. So there can be good anger since God originally gave us this capacity to do this. There can be good anger. And that's why the title is How to Be Good and Angry. Good anger rightly judges something to be wrong and acts rightly to make it right. Good anger rightly judges something to be wrong. It's an accurate judgment. It rightly judges something to be wrong. And then it acts in a right way to make it right. That's good anger, bad anger, wrongly or rightly, judges something to be wrong. That is, bad anger can, in fact, look at something that is wrong, judge it, evaluate it, and be correct in that evaluation. But it's bad anger because it doesn't go about a constructive purpose in the right way. So bad anger can wrongly or rightly judge something to be wrong. But bad anger always deals with in, deals with it in the wrong ways. Whether good or bad anger, it always has this in common. It says, I'm against that. Whether we should be against that or not is another matter. But that's what all anger has underlying it. I'm against that. And on page 10 in your notes, session 2. So you don't have those notes in front of you. with session 5. I didn't mean to wake anybody up, but I heard you guys... But on page 10 in session 2, we defined anger as active displeasure towards something that is important enough to care about. And it may be real wrong or it may be perceived wrong. Do you remember I said the more self-centered you are, the more evil you see? Because anything, if you're self-centered, anything that's not to your liking is evil. So you've got this active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. And you may care about a bunch of stuff in your self-centeredness that in actuality is not evil or wrong at all. It's only because it is not to your liking. So am I angry at the right things and in the right way is the question all of us need to ask. There is a good anger, but it's at the right things and in the right way. That we express anger is something universal and something God created. How we express it is individual. Depends on our nature, on our nurture, our sanctification, our spiritual growth, and so forth. And Then last week we uh, described the constructive displeasure of mercy. This is now honing in on what good anger looks like. It's the constructive displeasure of mercy. And last week we defined each of those key terms, constructive and displeasure and mercy. And that's as opposed to its opposite, the destructive displeasure of self-centeredness. But that constructive displeasure of mercy has four aspects. We saw two of those four last week, patience and forgiveness, and now the top of page 31. In addition to patience and forgiveness... There are two more indispensable aspects of the constructive displeasure of mercy, those of charity and constructive conflict. Now, when the word charity is going to be used throughout this session, don't read that as generosity. We, we think of a charitable organization that gives things to people. So charity, as used here, certainly can involve that, giving stuff to, to people, helping somebody who's in need. But... Really, it's a substitute for the word love. So when you see the word charity here, we're really talking about taking what is done to us, evaluating something that is that is wrong and that we're rightly displeased about, but responding to that rather than in a selfish way, in a selfless way, called charity or love. So in addition to patience and forgiveness, there are two more indispensable aspects, charity and constructive conflict. Charity moves toward the person who has done wrong with undeserved kindness. But there is also a place for entering into constructive conflict when wrongs have been done. Now let me just stop there. Have you ever considered that it may be a Christian thing to do (laughs) to engage in conflict? And if you haven't, you've missed something very important. And I would dare say many of us have not. In fact... We live in a culture of niceness. And the people who are the most Christian are the people who are most nice. Pastors should always be nice. I battled this my entire ministry. This perception that pastors should always be nice. And I want to be nice. And sometimes I even am nice. But, and and putting pastors, putting me aside, just us as Christians, we need to understand, dear friends, that there are things that are wrong that need to be made right. And God's love takes action when he sees what is wrong in order to make it right. And that can often create friction. Because think about it, we as sinners like to do the wrong, correct? That's the way we are. So if you have someone who then takes action in order to make it right, that's going to be perceived as a bad thing. That's an unpleasant thing. But it's a necessary thing. And we're going to see it's something God does. It's something Jesus does. But it's constructive conflict. So back to that top paragraph, there is a place for entering into constructive conflict when wrongs have been done. Mercy does not stand idly by while others go in the wrong direction or when someone, whether ourselves or someone else, is being mistreated. Mercy wades into difficult situations and is willing to get involved. It is not what you and I want to do. We see something happening, perhaps a conflict between two people, And we, instead of trying to help figure out where the problem is and is the problem with one or the other, maybe both, but is it with one or the other, instead of doing that, we just say, I hope you get that worked out. In the words of James chapter 2, be warmed and filled, hope you find some food somewhere. But I'm not going to get, I don't want to get involved. But mercy does not stand idly by It wades into difficult situations, is willing to get involved. It's willing to raise difficult issues, apply justice when it's needed, and to persevere to see good come out of evil. Constructive conflict continues the work that patience, forgiveness, and charity begin. So let's look at the first of these, charity or love. Anger alone, when rightly or wrongly energized, operates out of a strictly punitive sense of fairness and justice. So if left there, I, you, evaluate something. Remember what anger is. It's active displeasure. So we have this displeasure, and we're angry because of what it is we're seeing, whether we've rightly evaluated it or not. And just at that level, in that moment, our anger, whether it is rightly motivated, uh, still is going to... is is going to insist, at least initially, on fairness and justice. Without charity, it would always be that way. But, next line, charity looks at what happened and says that's wrong, and then it does the undeserved, generous act of kindness. And this calls for the most difficult kind of self-confrontation of all. Love your enemies. Really. So... Uh, I heard a guy years ago, um, not a guy, it was a gal. It was actually Joan Baez, that great theologian. Joan Baez say this: Jesus said, "Love your enemies." Gandhi said, "We have no enemies." I can still remember saying, "Gandhi said we have no enemies." Well, Gandhi was an idiot, just to, <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but but it's just this pious thing: we have no enemies. Nonsense. In a fallen world, there absolutely are enemies. There absolutely is evil. Jesus was being absolutely realistic when he said, and called us to love your enemies. By the way, Gandhi couldn't pull that off either. <laughs> you know, in his in his nonviolent uh, protests for the liberation of India, he finally had to send his armies into war to make that happen. So we do have enemies and in a fallen world, there is going to be there is going to be conflict. Jesus said, I have come to bring not peace, but a sword. Why? Not because that's his nature to do that, but because it is his nature to respond to evil. And the only way that evil can be responded to constructively. And that is through this conflict. Love your enemies. There really are and will be such things. But it's hard to do. It's impossible, actually. It's an unnatural act. How can I see wrong and be wronged and yet do right? Notice these four lines, middle of page 31. If God is actually merciful to you and me, his enemies. So think about it that way. Is God merciful to enemies? Well, yeah, because he's merciful to me. And before coming to Christ, that's the category I was in and you were in, according to the Bible. If God is actually merciful to you and me, his enemies, and if Jesus Christ lived this out consistently in how he loved us, and he did, and if this is the very image of God that he intends to form in us, that is... If Jesus lived this way, and if Jesus is the model, if Jesus is the full image of God that I'm supposed to be being conformed to, which is true, then, if the and if the Holy Spirit is for real and will actually work with you and bring you, bring me to this fruit, then it stands to reason that the Lord means it when he says, Love your enemies and be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. So don't dismiss this as just Sunday piety. This is what God says. This is what Jesus did. And this is what we are called to model. Love your enemies. But our eyes glaze over when we hear love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It's easy to write off Jesus as if he must not really mean it, as if in saying this he's being rather a gentle-souled, naive idealist. Does Jesus' call imply that he hopes that people can just be nicer to each other? Is Jesus unaware that this sounds like let people walk all over you? Nothing of the sort. The love and goodness he's talking about has more grit than sweetness, more hard as nails realism than niceness. You can't separate what he did for us, blood, sweat, and tears, from what he calls us to do. He means what he says. And Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. To do good to someone who does wrong, who has hurt you or others, this is amazing. It's so much easier to give back in kind. Charity does what the recipient doesn't deserve. Someone deserves payback because they did you or others wrong, but you do charity. That piece of folk wisdom that says hate the sin but love the sinner is one attempt to capture the constructive displeasure of mercy. In fact, you can fiercely disagree with a person and actively dislike what he or she is doing. All the stuff of anger, and yet you can still do genuine kindness. Anger grips tightly a wrong, points it out, prosecutes it, punishes it, stores it up. Brings it up. Keeps bringing it up. Mercy acts generously toward a wrongdoer rather than claiming your pound of flesh. Here's how anger thinks. I've been wronged, so I'll deal out fair and just punishment to the wrongdoer. Now let me just say here, sometimes the wrongdoer is ill-defined. You're just not happy with the way things are. You're just displeased with the way things are. Your life is not going well. Now think about this. If I don't know who it is that I should be mad at for the way my life is going, then who am I mad at? Ultimately, you're mad at God. You're mad at God. You don't like the way, you don't like the hand that God dealt you. And I've wound up here. So this anger is very often interpersonal, but there's always, and first and foremost, the God component, the vertical component. We'll end today's lesson with that. Remember what I said in the first hour? In every relationship, there are at least three persons, and God is always the most important. So instead of justice toward a wrongdoer, it acts generously toward a wrongdoer, does, does charity, But sometimes the wrongdoer is elusive and and ill-defined. It's just I don't like the way things are going. And ultimately, that's God we're angry at. But generosity, like patience and forgiveness, is unfair. Now, if you weren't here last week, we talked about what we mean by unfair. But briefly, understand this, friends. Salvation and all of God's gifts to sinners like you and me Is always unfair. Salvation and all of God's gifts to sinners like you and me is always unfair. Meaning, God didn't give you what was fair. If God gave you what was fair, where would we all be? Dead. Not just six feet under. Les Olala said this, Every day I wake up and I'm not in hell is an occasion for thanks to God. And anything we receive from the hand of a holy God as sinners, better than hell, is more than we deserve. So this is why we use the language then of unfairness. Salvation and all of God's gifts to sinners are then unfair. So how did you get saved? How did you become a Christian? Because God was wonderfully unfair to you. He was gracious to you. He reached down and did for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. And then likewise, we treat with purposeful kindness, top of page 32, someone who treated us or others badly, unfairly. We're not going for the juggler. We're not going for justice. As God didn't in us and for us. So what does that look like? Here are some snapshots that give us a feel for how a charitable person approaches life. And not surprisingly, Jesus tells us that God is the first person to whom we should look if we want to model this then practically in life. If it's not just some Sunday school lesson that the pastor is talking about the spiritual stuff. You know, a pastor doesn't understand real life. He's never worked a real job in his life. He's never had to interact with people, all that. Well... I did work a real job before I got this gig and yeah. for 20 years, so I do know what that's like. And further, I'm a sinner and I deal with sinners all the time, okay? So it's not just some pie in the sky thing. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 there, "You have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven." Why does that last line there, that you may be children of your father in heaven? Because this is the way your father in heaven has loved you as his enemies. If you are now, if you now have his nature, if you are part of his family, if he has regenerated you and given you spiritual life, then this is the kind of attitude and perspective he's forming in you. That that, uh, word on the street, word on the street, you have heard it said, So it's been going around. You've heard it said. That word on the street is philosophy of life 101 for most people. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do me wrong, I'll hold a grudge or get even. That's the easy way. But it's a recipe for disaster, for estrangement and war. Jesus turns the tables. Our father doesn't operate that way. He brings up his children in a way that's hard, but it's also good. It's the path to reconciliation and to peace. He wants us to understand love in reality, not theory. So he gives us these three pictures. As he goes on in, in Matthew chapter 5. First, Jesus says, notice the weather. <laughs> Our Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We need sun and rain in order to have food, and God doesn't discriminate in doing basic good. So we need to ask ourselves, can we do that? Can we be kind to people no matter? Can we show that kind of generosity to people as God does? Second, Notice how even bad people treat their friends right. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? So the question Jesus is asking here is, can you take it a step up from bad people? If you're children of the Father and all you do is the same stuff that people who are not children of the Father do, then what does that say? But can you, as children of the Father, take it a step up from that? And third, notice how all people everywhere recognize a special bond, not just between friends, but family members. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So can you take it a step up from the us-them loyalty that comes naturally to everyone? So if you would even deign even consider, think about constructively getting involved and even creating a conflict for the sake of the glory of God. This is just the weirdest thing I'm saying, isn't it? The Christian life is just the weirdest thing. You know, um, Jesus says, you know, in in John chapter 8, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And I used to teach the teenagers when I, these poor teenagers had the misfortune of having me as their leader years ago. And, and I used to paraphrase that verse and I said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you weird. And I wanted to give this to teenagers because you just need to understand that when you buy into Jesus, you buy into being different. And why do I say that? John seventeen seventeen Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart by your truth. They're going to be different than everybody else if they follow this. And the reason this sounds so weird to us is because this is something only God people can do. Only people who are regenerated and have the Holy Spirit can do this. And it does sound so foreign to our ears, doesn't it? for us to for us to then then say that we are going to do this for people who have wronged us and we're not going to we're going to even not take into account are they my friends or my family members because seeing good done in and for them is more important than blood and friendship the spirit is thicker than blood And so we pursue that. But some of you, some of us, have this thing. Hey, look, I don't know uh, how many police officers we have. Of course, we got Wayne's a police officer. Wayne's not here today. But, you know, police officers have this thing called the thin blue line, I'm told. Fellow police officers don't do anything wrong. We defend each other. But we've all got our own version of that. You're my friend. I never tell you you did anything wrong. And let me tell you something. If you were never willing to tell your friend they did something wrong, then you're not being their friend. I have a little sermon I do for teenagers as well. Again, the poor teenagers. Friends don't let friends sin. Friends help each other to be like Jesus. So that motivation will cause you to want to get involved and do this weird thing. If you're a child of the Father, back to the notes, then you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48. I get this perfection through Christ who is the only one who's perfect, but then I try to practice what he was like and is like. Charity toward people who displease you is the perfect response. It's the way things ought to be. It's not just niceness. It's not just the right thing to do. It has a bigger goal. And that is conforming us to the image of Christ and being an instrument of that in others' lives. The second example takes us toward the goal. Romans 12, the Bible gives detailed instructions about how to think and what to do and why to think and do those things. It unpacks what it means to live by the mercies of God. You see in quotes there the mercies of God? Some of you may know where that comes from. It is at the very beginning of Romans 12 in verse 1. So after chapters 1 through 11 where Paul has written there about the the manifold, many mercies of God. Now he starts in verse 12 for five chapters through the end, through chapter 16, to say, now based upon all that God has done in his grace for you in Christ. Now based on that, here's what you do. So therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercies, to live your lives as, to give yourselves as living sacrifices. To God, and then gives us practical instruction. So that's why that's in quotes. Chapter 12 unpacks what it means to live by the mercies of God that come to us in the many gifts of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And in that chapter, verses 17 to 21, we learn that retaliatory anger comes easy. It takes hard thought, forethought, planning prayer to lean against what comes naturally. So verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful, take care that is, give thought. Be careful, full of care to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. People know the difference. We have radar for when people adopt an attitude or tone of voice or mock us or avoid us. And we also have radar for when people treat us right. But for us to do right takes work. Remember, you never know how things are going to turn out, it goes on to say that. So you do this. Be careful in the way you deal. And remember, chapter 12, verse 18 says, you don't know how things are going to turn out, but you're fully responsible for what you bring to the table. Notice verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, what's implied there? As it depends on you, if it's possible. It may not be possible. And in order for there to be real reconciliation, both parties have to move toward it, correct? This is realistic about that. My responsibility, your responsibility, is to do what we're supposed to do, whether the other party responds to that or not. Those words set a challenging goal, and they embed that goal within the realism that we can't control how life plays out. And then the passage goes on. God gives these reasons for becoming peaceable rather than vengeful. It's a curious and unexpected combination of reasons. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So first, trust that God's just anger will destroy all evil and all and he will right all wrongs when the time is right. Some of you have people that you're living with, that you're associated with, and you're you're thinking they're getting away with it. And I've got to make sure they don't get away with it. you got to do what we're talking about here, and then having done that, you give it to the Lord. Because, forgive the grammar, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Why is nobody getting away with nothing? Because God makes sure God knows everything that's happening. God knows every motivation, every secret of the heart, everything that that person is lying about. Every, everything that that person is doing to be a hypocrite and to come to church and put on a good face when at home and at work there's something else. You know that. You're trying to correct that. You should try to correct that in the ways we're talking about, but then you leave it to God. And God can and will take care of it when the time is right. And second, beware, because if you return evil for evil, you yourself then become an evildoer. If you play for the wrong team, you play God, which means playing with explosives. So a specific kind of action is called for. Love for someone who wrongs you does not mean working up feelings of affection, attraction, and attachment it means a policy of doing tangible good. And will you circle or underline the word policy there? It's a policy. Notice, it's not, I have to then work up that I feel good about this person, that I, no, if the person's an enemy, you don't feel good about them. But it's a policy. You've made a decision that this is what I'm going to do in this situation and in these circumstances. On the contrary, says the passage, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And and we sinfully look at that and we go, well, hey, now, okay. Now I'm starting to like this. Because, okay, there's some, there's some return here. Namely, they're gonna, they're gonna get theirs. Right? But no, the idea here, the whole context is we're trying to do good. And the burning coals, the idea is that In God's grace, we're hoping that your kindness will be used to move them toward God. That they will be convicted of what they're doing. That your kindness will convict them. Not punish them, convict them. As a first step toward what they need. So charity is a powerful weapon, a powerful weapon of good. And all these thoughts, actions, and reasons are going somewhere. That you do not be overcome by evil, but that you overcome evil with this good. God himself is about the business of good destroying evil, and you have, I have the privilege of playing a small part in that great war. So those, those are biblical examples. Then you've got example, an example from American history. And just um, page end of page 33 is about, last half of page 33 is about Abraham Lincoln. I won't read all of that, but... There was a book written about Lincoln and his administration called Team of Rivals. And the idea was that Lincoln was, and the notes use this word, he was magnanimous enough. He was large-hearted enough. And frankly, he was secure enough in who he was and that he was doing the right thing. That he was able to bring people into his administration who were rivals of his. So he didn't have to have people who were fawning over him. He didn't fire people who had criticized him during the campaign. Just saying. He was secure enough in who he was and what he was doing that he had rivals. One of those was Salmon Chase, who he nominated to be the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And Chase was a rival. Chase wanted to be president himself. And so someone asked him ab- about that. And if you, if you look at the middle of the second to the last paragraph, it says, While serving as Treasury Secretary, he, Chase, had both overtly opposed and covertly sought to undermine Lincoln. When people reminded Lincoln of what Chase had done to him, Lincoln responded, Now I know meaner things about Chase than any of those men can tell me. I know mo- still more about this guy but we have stood together in the time of trial and i should despise myself if i allowed personal differences to affect my judgment of his fitness for the office his secretary later said he's the only guy in the world who could have done who could have done that that's how rare this is magnanimous large hearted but top of page 34 lincoln was not soft he exercised decisive authority He pursued a cause, prosecuted a war, and was willing to fight to the finish. And the Lord is not soft either. He deals straight with people, seeking to win them to mercy, willing to lose them to their own hard-heartedness, and mercifully protecting his people from their hostility. That leads us to this fourth quality, constructive conflict. Patience Patience makes you hang in there. Forgiveness makes you let go of getting even or holding on to bitterness. Charity makes you generous to those who do not deserve generosity. But these three mercies don't make you nice. They make you the right kind of tough, able to do the fourth mercy as needed, constructive conflict. If you say, I hate conflict, I don't like conflict, and therefore I refuse to enter into it, Look, I understand not liking conflict. If you like conflict, you're insane. But love and charity are willing to do what you don't like for the sake of the good of somebody else. The displeasure of mercy enters forcefully into conflict in order to redeem. There's no one-word summary for this most rare form of goodness. Forthright problem-solving goes about seeking to right what's wrong. Constructive anger steps into wrongs and conviction with force. It tackles evils head-on. It means, get this, a willingness to start a necessary conflict in order to solve a real problem. It means a willingness to go through the messy process of engaging in constructive conflict. A willingness to pursue necessary justice, giving mercy and protection to victims. In effect, protecting evildoers from their own power to do wrong and holding out God's mercies to those willing to reckon with what they've done. You raise the problem that wrong creates. Do that in the right kind of way. And you create the right kind of trouble. You create the right kind of trouble. Mercy's not a free pass. It's an invitation to turn and repent. And so it doesn't mean that the consequences of what you've done are gone. They may still remain. Uh, You get drunk. You go out and drive. You kill someone. You repent. They're still dead. That person is still dead. Right? So those those are those consequences, but you're still being called to turn and, and to repent. It is not inconsistent, then, with facing consequences. Innumerable felons have experienced the combination of paying for their crimes and being forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, coming to life-changing faith while in prison. God consistently reveals who He is in the inconceivably wonderful dance of mercy and justice. And in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, you have that combination. God shows himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. He says to Moses there that I am the God who is slow to anger. I abound in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands and I, give, uh, and, and for, and I forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. And that's where we like to leave it. Ah, that's God. Slow to anger, forgiving. And then the next part says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So which is it? Is he impatient or is he patient? Does God forgive or is he unforgiving? Does he show love or does he not show love? He shows the constructive displeasure of mercy and that creates a conflict with our sins. His mercy is not niceness. His mercy is not blanket acceptance of any and all. Mercy to us cost him the blood of the Lamb, and mercy comes to us at the cost of our sin and our pride. We've got to be willing to give that up. His kindness is an open invitation to turn to him in repentance and faith and come to him in our need for mercies freely offered and our trust in mercies freely given. But a hard, impenitent heart rejects the offer, goes its own way, and will experience the fair consequences. Now, next page, page 35. Gives you a list of two words. See it in the middle there? Two sets of words. And as you read through those lists, they look the same, but they are profoundly different. List number one is all about the constructive displeasure of mercy, constructive conflict. These are the kinds of words you use. List number two is all about self-centeredness in attacking someone, coming at someone. So they're quite different. And the last part of verse or Page 25 explains that. Now, I want you to see, and we'll be done, as we close page 36 and the constructive displeasure of mercy in action from the memoirs of Winston Churchill. Middle of page 36. Churchill's memoirs of World War II contain a fascinating portrayal of how the constructive displeasure of mercy operates, culminating in his willingness to get angry and engage in constructive conflict. As Prime Minister of England, Churchill had to work closely with the USSR's Joseph Stalin in alliance against Adolf Hitler. He found Stalin to be, quote, surly, snarling, grasping, ungrateful, suspicious, bullying, accusatory, and manipulative. Other than that, I think he liked him. During the years from 39 to 41, Stalin had shown himself, quote, utterly indifferent to our, that is the British, fate. He not only joined Hitler in plundering Eastern Europe, but he generously supplied the Nazis with oil, iron tin, and grain to assist in their war effort against England. But in 41, Hitler betrayed Stalin and invaded Russia, leading to the largest, bloodiest battles in the history of the human race. Stalin and Churchill became odd allies. England immediately and consistently poured massive relief aid and war materials into Russia, but Stalin's response was demanding and suspicious, rarely grateful, never trusting. He frequently blamed England for Russia's troubles. In responding to Stalin, Churchill was unfailingly patient, forgiving, and generous as a matter of policy. Remember I had you circle that word policy? This is the way I operate, not because of emotion. This is what I do. Policy. He repeatedly displayed those first three attributes of mercy's constructive displeasure. He kept in view the larger purpose of their alliance. Churchill consistently bore with the unpleasantness of his ally rather than taking offense and cutting him off. But such love is not sentimental or nice. It's not blind to real wrongs. On one occasion, the Soviet ambassador met with Churchill in London. Churchill writes, The ambassador emphasized the extreme gravity of the crisis on the Russian front in poignant terms which commanded my sympathy. But when presently I sensed an underlying air of menace in his appeal, I was angered. I said to the ambassador, remember that only four months ago we in this island did not know whether you were not coming in against us on the German side. Whatever happens and whatever you do, you of all people have no right to make reproaches to us. By the way, just one man's opinion. The Soviet leaders aren't any better today. So again, I'm just saying. So read the news with discernment. Bottom of page 36. Glad I got that down. I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. (laughs) Notice the bluntly appropriate I was angered. Notice that he meant no words in confronting the problem. But it was all this constructive displeasure. Now look at the third paragraph on that page 37. There are many unsung heroes who exemplify this redemptive, tough love. For example, a mother and father whose teenager is throwing his life into the vortex of drug abuse, promiscuity, rage, deceit, and self-destruction. That child's life is going seriously wrong. He tries to bully his parents to manipulate them. Most parents in this situation are mastered by their rage, their fear, despair, confusion, and self-righteousness. Out-of-control kids often provoke out-of-control parents and the other way around. But these two parents have been fundamentally mastered by God and his sort of mercy. Neither of them is a perfect person, but they fight against their tendencies to raw anger, anxiety, discouragement, confusion, or self-righteousness. They admit their faults even while grieving over and addressing their child's self-destructive ways. They don't always know what to do, but on the overall balance sheet, They simultaneously exhibit patience, forgiveness, charity and the firm clarity of appropriate consequences as they seek to bring constructive truth into a very difficult situation. Or here's another one. Wives and husbands who redemptively confront spouses who are deceitful, domineering, hostile or immoral. Or friends who've redemptively taken on a long time friend who was acting destructively. All of these people could have given fair and just reasons for giving in to disgust and wrath, seemingly good reasons for giving up. But all these people showed the constructive displeasure of mercy. They treated the wrongdoer unfairly, like the vast and generous unfairness of the God who had, who had, who had loved them, who does not treat us as our sins deserve. But then they took action is a matter, next po- paragraph says, as a matter of policy. And then your last page, and we're done. You've got three gears that most of us operate in when we're dealing with one another. And those three de- gears are, I don't like that, I don't care, or I like that. But the hardest and best response is an odd fourth gear. I don't like that. I care, so I will act in constructive love. And that last page says, that's what you constantly see Jesus doing. That's what he calls us to do. All right, we're going to see that fleshed out in the three weeks remaining that we have. Let's ask the Lord to help us and we'll be done. Father, thank you for instructing us both in the printed word, but in then what that word tells us about the living word, the Lord Jesus who lived this out, who walked the earth among sinners, interacting with sinners, but who is the perfect image of God that we are called to conform to. So when he says, this is what I call you to do, love your enemies, Lord, help us to see that for what it is. It's the call of those who are your children. And Lord, then help us to to take it on and help us to do the hard work of thinking through it and how it works out in the difficult situations that you have called us to in family and at work and perhaps even in church. In all our relationships, there's the potential for the need for this conflict. Lord, help us to be people who do the patience and the forgiveness and the charity so that we then have a platform for the conflict when it's necessary. Go with us this week, we ask you, as we seek to practice this and bring us back together next Lord's Day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.